good to see you back tonight. Take your copy of God's Word and go to Judges chapter 16. We are in a series on Samson on Sunday evenings, and uh, I enjoy these Old Testament passages. Let me just say also, and I'm going to say it, going to say it on Sunday morning next week. If you've been looking at our thermometer out there, just since we began our fundraising to pay the mortgage down, it's at $40,000 already. So thank you for that. Amen. Yes. Um, wouldn't it be wonderful, you know, as God blesses that we'd be able to pay that thing right on down. And so we're going to continue to do that through the Christmas season and into maybe tax refund season next year. We'll see what happens. But, uh, um, but yes, thank you. Thank you so much for giving to that. <clears throat> in, the, in the early years of my Navy career, I joined the Navy when I was 19, and so I was a young fellow. I look back on those days and think of, of uh, how little I knew and understood. Um, you know, you join the military at 19 and you just do what you're told. You know, go stand over there, so you go stand there. And, you know, you do whatever they tell you. Um, I went through electronics school. I was an AT, aviation electronics. So... Um, they teach you how to work on electronic stuff on an airplane, and um, one of the pieces of test equipment looked like three refrigerators side by side, and we had signal generators and power supplies, and uh, it's a great big giant disk drive. It's about this big around. You slide this thing in there, and it runs just antiquated, you know, the little readers that go out by today's standards, ancient, you know, prehistoric. But in the day, it was state-of-the-art stuff. And in the bottom of that test equipment was a power supply that could generate 20,000 volts. Thing was a, a beast. Whole drawer, you pull it out, big heat sinks in it. Well, every now and then on this test equipment, I had gone to school to not only work on parts on the airplane, but to maintain the equipment. I had a, what's called an NEC to work on that machine. And so part of my job at Cecil Field was to run, fix airplane parts, and fix the bench if it broke. There were two of us that had NEC to work on the bench, which was good and bad because if I was at home on Saturday and the bench broke, guess who got a phone call? We can't fix anything because the thing's down, so you got to come and fix it. So I'd go and fix it. Well, there was another fellow there with us, and when we would work on this thing, every now and then you would have to adjust the power supplies. You'd have to pull the drawer out, stick a screwdriver down in there, usually a really long one, and turn uh, adjustment screws in there. But in the manual, it said, always power it down before you do that. You know, like turn the power off before you stick a screwdriver down in there. Now, that makes sense to us, right? I mean, we go, yeah, turn that thing off. But it takes time to power it down, make the adjustments that you think need to be made, and then power it back up and run the test again that gets tedious. So what did some guys do? Don't really need to turn that off. We'll just make the adjustment with it on, and then we'll just go from there. Well, we had one guy in the shop who was notorious for doing that. And I told him one day, more than once, I said, hey, that thing's going to bite you one of these days. It's, it's, it's just waiting for it to happen. There's a reason in the manual it's in the big, bold print to turn the power off. Because in the military everything's a manual, right? Everything's an instruction. So you turn to the page, you know, now it's on an iPad, no doubt. But back then it was a book about this big and you open it up and you read the thing. And I said, you see right there? It says, turn the power off. 
So he just, over long periods of time, would just adjust that thing with the power on. One day, I was standing at the workbench working on something. He's over there adjusting the power supply with the power on. And guess what happened? That thing bit him. Here's, here's how it went. I heard a crack and an explosion. And I turned around to see him sliding down the wall onto his fanny like a cartoon, right? Well, the bulkhead was 10 feet away from where that power supply was at. So I can only imagine it picked him up and sent him over there and he sat down. Well, our first concern was he's probably dead. So we all ran over there and he still had a pulse and his eyes were all glassy and, you know, and once I figured out he wasn't dead, I said, man, you sure are a fool. That's all I can say. He had, a, he had a, a screwdriver. The thing that saved his life is he was holding the plastic into the screwdriver. He wasn't touching the metal. He had a screwdriver about that long. He stuck it down in there, and it arced. The only thing left in his hand, and he still had it, was the rubber piece of that screwdriver. There was no metal left. It was gone. It evaporated. 20,000 volts will do that. It evaporated that metal part. You know the worst part of that deal? was doing the missing tool report. Because <laughs> in the Navy, every toolbox has a spot that the tool goes in, and you can't change shifts unless there's a tool in there. Well, all we had was the rubber handle that was left. So we had to certify, we had to get inspectors to come in and say we didn't leave the metal part of that screwdriver in a piece of equipment that was going to go on an airplane. That was why they were so strict about it. So that was the hardest part of that whole deal. Here's the point of the story. That man had been warned over and over and over. I had warned him. Other people had warned him, hey, you really need to turn power off. That thing's going to bite you one of these days. And it bit him. Now, it's the old proverbial, there's two paths of taking life. You can take the easy road, or you can take the hard road. He never adjusted that thing again with the power on, I can tell you that. Okay? He learned his lesson the hard way. That is a, a, a simplistic illustration, if you will, of what sin does. Sin seems harmless. You know, it's the 20,000 volt power supply that we can play around with with a screwdriver and nothing, seems like nothing's gonna happen. And you play with that sin for a long time. You mess around with it, you allow it, you flirt with it, you don't really exclude it from your life. You just kind of keep messing with it and guess what happens? One day that thing rises up and bites you. One day that thing rises up and it gets you. As we come to this passage about Samson, that's exactly what happened to him. The last verse we read in chapter 15 said that he ruled over Israel for 20 years, that he was a judge for 20 years over Israel. I believe the account in chapter 16 is that it, obviously at the end of his life because he dies at the end of the chapter. So he's been ruling in Israel, it seems to me, for a long time. In that 20 years, I would suppose, and the Bible doesn't always fill in all the little details. We saw the beginning, and now we see the end. <coughs> Excuse me. I would suppose in that 20 years in between... <coughs> God had used him to subdue the Philistines. 
They were afraid of him. We'll see that in a minute. No, no telling after last week when he slew a thousand with the jawbone of a donkey. No, no telling how many other encounters he had with them and subdued them. And so 20 years. But what do we know about Samson from the beginning of his life? What do we know about his weakness? What was one of his weaknesses? Immorality. Women. Particularly Philistine women. <clears throat> so I can only imagine that the events we're going to read about in chapter 16 here in just a moment <clears throat> were not the exception to the rule of his life. I, I have to think that for 20 years he's been the judge. God's blessed him with this tremendous power. And he's basically lived life on his own terms, including the women and the immorality. Now we know from the beginning he had a Nazarite vow on him. From, from birth, God said, you're going to be a Nazarite to me. There were three things they weren't supposed to do. They weren't supposed to drink anything, uh, any alcoholic beverages. They weren't supposed to defile themselves, which has a whole list of things, including the immorality. And he wasn't supposed to cut his hair. He had broken two of those right out of the chute, right back in the beginning, but he had never cut his hair. So he had the third one, he had never offended in that area of the Nazarite vow up until now. And you do understand, as we begin to read this, that the hair wasn't where his power came from. Power came from God the Holy Spirit. The hair was a symbol of his commitment to the call of God on his life. And when he forsook all of that, when he forsook all three, then God took his hand off of him, took the, whole, the Holy Spirit, left him. And he was like any other person. So sin cost Samson everything. This chapter, Judges chapter 16, sometimes I don't like to read it. Makes me sad. But let's read it and learn from it. Okay, look at the first three verses. Now Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. The Bible's just flat out honest, isn't it? I mean, it just, I mean, he goes down to Gaza, there's a woman, and he goes into her, okay? Verse 2, when the Gazites were told, Samson has come here, they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. They were quiet all night, saying, in the morning, when it is daylight, we will kill him. And Samson lay low till midnight. Then he arose at midnight, took hold of the doors of the gate of the city, and the two gateposts pulled them up, bar and all, put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. That's an incredible story in itself. Let's think about it for a minute. <clears throat> the first question that I ask myself when I read this, and scholars ask this question too, what in the world is he doing in Gaza? Do you look at a Bible map in the back of your Bible if you still have one of those things? It's a long way from where he lived to Gaza. Gaza is one of the, one of the city-states of the Philistines, one of the five, probably 20, 30 miles from where he's supposed to be, and he's in Gaza. Why would he be in Gaza? Gaza's a city of the enemy, belongs to the Philistines. He's Hebrew. They don't like him. They don't like him at all. Matter of fact, he's number one, he's the number one state enemy of the Philistines. What's he doing in Gaza? I thought about it read about it. Here's my conclusion. One of two things, either he had legitimate business there, like 
there was some reason he went there, and we don't know that. Or he just went because he could. And what I mean that is pride. Like, I'm going to go hang out in Gaza because there ain't anything they can do about it. I'm going to go hang out in Gaza just because I'm going to embarrass them. I'm going to walk in and out of the city, and they can't stop me. Because if they do, I'll just kill them. That seems to me to fit the character of his narcissism and of his character. And my point is this. His character didn't begin in the beginning of this chapter. For 20 years, that's the way he's been. But eventually, what happens when we let sin go unchecked? It ends up hurting us. Now, he sees this woman, this harlot in Gaza, and he decides to go in and indulge himself. And so he does. I call this a sin of opportunity. Um, I would say two things about that scenario, two lessons we might learn. Number one, pride goes before fall. Samson was proud, and I don't think we can get around that. He was arrogant. In fact, most of the troubles at the beginning of his life came from him feeling like he had been offended and needing to get revenge. That comes from pride. Uh, hubris. I can go and do what I want. I can always be victorious. No one better than me. <clears throat> he was morally strong or, or physically strong, but morally weak. Bad combination. Solomon warns in Proverbs 11 too, when pride comes, then comes shame. Shame was a long time coming for Samson. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Long time coming for Samson. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You say, what's the lesson for us, Pastor? Well, the lesson's pretty obvious. Samson's power and success was God's work in his life, not him. And Samson seemed to forget that and take credit many times for what God did in his life. And I would say to us, let us not make the same mistake. You and I understand that whatever success you have in the Christian life, whatever success I have in the Christian life, and when I say that, I mean, wow, whoo, today I was victorious over the temptations of my life, and today God blessed me to be, uh, to really walk close to him. Those things are not true of us at any given time because we're all that good. You understand that, right? Those things are true of us because God creates it in us. God, the Holy Spirit, creates it in us. So to take credit for what God's doing in us is the height of pride and arrogance and is really a sin against God. For us to be proud of anything we do in the Christian life is to take credit for what God's doing. And we should never do that. God's the one who gives the increase in the ministry. God's the one who keeps us in the Christian walk. As we surrender to the power of the Holy Spirit, it is God who creates in us the image of Christ, not us. Samson forgot that or never recognized it in the first place. The second thing about this being a sin of opportunity, <clears throat> I would suggest that Samson was in the wrong place, which led to him doing the wrong things. Had he not been in Gaza, he would not have had the opportunity to be immoral with the prostitute. 
Had he not been prideful to be where he was, he would not have had the opportunity to be in the jam that he was getting into with the men of the city. And I thought the same is true for us. There are people and there are places that we have no business dealing with or being around. You say, well, that's kind of mean. No, it's not mean at all. It's wise. We are social creatures, are we not? There is a theory called the social learning theory that's very popular among business and among societal studies. Social learning theory says that we learn the things that we do in life and we emulate others when we do that. So is it any wonder why the Bible says that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together? Because God knew we were social creatures before we figured that out. And so what we should do, unlike what Samson did, is we should surround ourselves with people who love Jesus and will call us along to love Jesus too. We should surround ourselves with people who will challenge us to be better, not worse. Which is why a body of believers is so important. Your personal friends and my personal friends should be men and women who challenge us to be more godly, not less godly. The circle of influence that we run in should be one that strengthens our faith, not diminishes it. Now, that doesn't mean we don't work and interact in the world because we do and we are salt and light to the world but that's not where I live and that's not where I hang out all the time the circle of friends as Samson should have figured out it's not the 30 Philistine guys at the wedding that he ought to be hanging out with it should be his Hebrew friends who love Jehovah God you see and that's where we should be in the Christian life there are places that Christians have no business being. Now it's right along here. People go, oh, you're being legalistic. We're not under the law. We're under grace. And we can go and do and do whatever we want. Yes, you can. Absolutely. Praise God. But I suggest to you men, Hooters is not a good place to eat lunch. Just make an observation. You understand? There are places... There are places that we have no business being. Ladies, when your girlfriends go out to eat or their workmates or people at work and they want to go to a place that's uh, not appropriate for Christian women to be, you should excuse yourself. Say, no, I'm, I'm sorry. I'd love to go to eat with you. If we go to McDonald's, I go with you, but I'm not going to that place. Samson was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Temptation came and he gave in to it. You want to know one of the easiest ways not to, give, not to give in to temptation? Don't be around it. I was going to just don't be around it. Just remove the influence of it from your life as much as possible. And then ask God the Holy Spirit to help you do the rest. Just remove it. Samson, Samson should have pursued purity and holiness, particularly in, in regard to his Nazarite vow. As you and I, what did we learn this morning about Jesus? One of his characteristics, he's holy. The Bible says, be holy because I'm holy. What does that mean for us? Exactly what it says. We should pursue a lifestyle that's pleasing to God. Impossible to be completely holy in this life because we live in these bodies. But it should nonetheless be our pursuit. Solomon didn't, or, or Samson didn't do that. Now notice these men, the enemy of the city in verse 3. They, the Bible says they 
they surrounded the place and they uh, prepared to attack him in the morning. Let me explain, if you knew about these cities, if you, if you look it up and study it, they had a main gate to the city, and at nighttime the gates were locked. It was very customary, they would lock the, the gates at night to keep people from coming in and out to be attacked, they would have a guard, and the gate would be locked till in the morning. It was also very customary that strangers weren't allowed to spend the night inside the city. They would throw them out. Except, one exception, if you were at the prostitute's house, they'd let you stay all night. Well, guess where Samson was at? He's at the prostitute's house. So they said, well, he's a stranger. They knew who he was. We'll let him stay there. And in the morning when he gets ready to leave, we'll, we'll all get by the city gate and we'll kill him when he goes out. Now, I don't know if those guys that were planning on killing him had seen what he did before. Probably not a good idea, right? I mean, but they were going to try to kill him. Instead of waiting till in the morning, Samson knew, apparently somebody told him, either the, the young lady he was with told him. So he gets up at midnight and goes to leave the city, but the gates are locked. Is that a problem for Samson? Nah, this is one of those great Bible stories. He just picks up the gates, the bars, the whole deal, rips them off the wall, and walks off with them. Gates, no problem. Matter of fact, Samson said, I got the key right here. Picked it up and left. Now the interesting part is it says he carried it all the way to the hill at Hebron. If you look at a map, see how far that is? As best I can tell, it's about 30 miles uphill. So he's toting the city gates on his back for a long ways uphill and sets them down when he gets there. Now I think about this kind of stuff, I don't know if you do, I thought, why would he do that? Why, why not just rip them off the wall Toad them out there in front of the city and dump them and go, is that all you got? You know, I don't know what, I don't know why. He, instead, he carries them all the way to Hebron, sets them down, and goes home. The only reason I can think is to add insult to injury because you just can't go down to Ace Hardware and buy a new set of gates, okay? So he totes them all the way, 30 miles away, and dumps them off. I guess I would say this as I think about his life and what he did there. Not only has he become a one-man army against the Philistines, but he rubs it in, and he embarrasses them, and he, and, he, and he assaults them to make them look bad, and he does everything in his power to antagonize them. Is that what God called him to do? No. It's not what God called him to do. God called him to be a judge and deliver them from the oppression of the Philistines. I got news for you. I got news for Samson. God loved the Philistines. He would have saved any of them who would have come to him. But Samson had taken his opportunity to be abusive. So he totes their city gates off. Now, that brings us to what I entitled in my notes as Samson's fatal flaw. Look down at verses 4 and 5. Afterward it happened that he loved the woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. If I was the lady on the radio around here and her name's Delilah and she plays the love songs in the evening, probably pick a different name. But nonetheless, Samson was in love with Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Entice him and find out where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him that we may bind him to afflict him, and every one of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. 
If you try to look up in the Bible information about Delilah, not a lot, just here, okay? What we know about her is she was obviously a businesswoman, uh, a prostitute, and uh, Samson, of course, we already know his taste for that, his flavor. And so he meets just a lot of some way, and the Bible says here that he loved her. I was looking over my notes this afternoon, which I want to do before I show up here, and that part still strikes me. That part just still strikes me. Strikes me for several reasons. Number one, he knows what she does for a living. Number two, a woman who does that for a living, and apparently she's pretty good at it, part of that love and intimacy thing is her stick. That's her business. So you have to know, if you're Samson, that when she says, oh, honey, I love you, she's looking at your wallet. She ain't looking at you. So any, any emotion or affection that she might show is less than genuine, is what I'm saying. So you might ask yourself, as I do, how could Samson be in love with a woman who's, who's false, who's empty? How could that possibly be that a man would, like Samson, would love her? Then I got to thinking about it. What does sin do to us, our senses and our judgment of right and wrong? What does it do? Blinds us, doesn't it? Samson had, here it is now, Samson had gone down this road of immorality for so long and was so confident and so, so secure in himself and his power and his position that he had become completely blind to foolishness. That he would fall in love with a woman who probably couldn't spell the word. Okay? He's in love with her. I wrote in my notes as I was thinking this week, and it's really probably more applicable to the young people who are up there in their own class, but lust does not equal love. The world's got that confused today, don't they? Lust and physical attraction doesn't equal love. We know love is much deeper than, than physical attraction or, or looks or appearance. Samson was overcome with lust. And I think even he confused love with lust. Sexuality and a willingness to engage in physical intimacy is not synonymous with love. A young man who says to a young woman, if you love me, you'll do what I want to do, that's not love. Any person that would say that to another person, that's not love. Matter of fact, that's the height of selfishness. And so Samson was caught up in this woman's web, and it's her business to capture men, and she had him hook, line, and sinker. Well, then the lords of the Philistines, now notice that. Not messengers, not just anybody, the head dudes of each city find out that Samson is in an affair with her, that he visits her often, you're going to find out in further in the story. They come to her with a business proposition. And they say, look, 
we've been trying to figure out the source of this guy's power for years. If you can figure it out, if you can get him to tell you where all that power comes from that makes him so dangerous, we'll pay you 5,500 silver pieces. Now, Delilah, she's a businesswoman. She's not attached to Samson. She cares two flips about him. In her mind, she starts adding up the money. And she goes, that's retirement funds. That's, that's, money. that's money to get my cottage down on the Sea of Galilee. That's, that's, that's the life-changing money. Not to mention, she's a businesswoman. She said, if I do a solid for them, they'll probably do a solid for me later. So she's conniving, and she notice what's missing in her, in her calculation here is anything about Samson. He now becomes an instrument for her to get what she wants, and that's what, that's what lost people do, and that's what she did. So she begins to plan her strategy. Now look at verses 6 to 14, and notice how this thing begins. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and with what you may be bound to afflict you. Now just pause right there for a minute. If your lover says to you, hey, tell me how I can hurt you. Tell me, tell me what the secret of your great power is so that I can bind you. Wouldn't that question like maybe raise some flags? I mean... There's pillow talk, and then there's, hey, how can I tie you up so you can't get loose? How, what, where does your power come from? You would think that would be a strange question. But again, Samson is so blinded by his lust and by his hubris, his overconfidence, that he doesn't even seem to be concerned about it. So verse 7, Samson said to her, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings, not yet dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings, not yet dried, and she bound them with them. Again, if you say to her seven fresh bowstrings, and the next time you come over, she's got seven fresh bowstrings, maybe need a new girlfriend. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm just thinking, I'm just thinking, you know, what in the world? Verse 9. Now men are laying in wait, uh, staying with her in the room. And she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he broke the bowstrings as strands of yarn breaks, and he touched as when they're touched with fire, so the secret of his strength was not known. Now think of that whole scenario real quick. These men are hiding somewhere on her property. Now, I don't think they jumped out just yet, because if they had jumped out when he broke the bowstrings, he would have probably killed them. But they were there to watch. They were there to see if, if these seven bowstrings could really restrain him, and then they would jump out. But it didn't. Whenever Delilah said to him, hey, the Philistines are on you, he gets up and breaks the bowstrings like nothing, okay? Verse 10, then Delilah said to Samson, look, you've mocked me and told me lies. Now please tell me what you may be bound with. So he said to her, if they bind me securely with new ropes, well, we already know that won't work because they tried that before, right? But he says to her, if they bind me with new ropes, that have never been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Therefore Delilah took new ropes, bound them with them, and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And men are lying in wait, staying in the room, but he broke them off his arms like a thread. 
Verse 13, Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me what you may be bound with. And he said to her, now watch this, now he's getting warm. If you weave the seven locks of my head into the web of the loom, so she wove it tightly with the batten of the loom and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled out the batten and the web from the loom. So we got this cat and mouse game going on between her and Samson. And honest, I, again, the Bible doesn't, the Bible just really lays out the facts, good and bad, about the heroes of the Bible. And I appreciate that about the scriptures because it paints a true picture. I think probably mixed into this is Samson's lust and the fact that he was overconfident. He didn't think anything could happen to him. And I say again, that's what sin does to us. It lulls us into a false sense of security. We go down a road maybe for years, maybe for a long time, and then suddenly, suddenly the world caves in because of that sin. Samson is almost to that point. He should have asked himself some questions here. In fact, I couldn't help but think this. If Samson had had the kind of relationship with God that he should have had, God the Holy Spirit would have said, hey man, you, you, need, to, you need to not be here. Is that not what God the Holy Spirit does to us? The little light comes on in your heart and says, hey, there's danger here. Danger, Will Rogers. You need to, need to get away from this, okay? Samson, though, because his walk with God wasn't what it's supposed to be, he's cold. He's cold to the Holy Spirit. He's cold to what God's doing in his life. I would suggest to you there's a lot of Christians walking around that way. Cold to what God wants to do in their life. Cold to the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because of sin. Because of immorality, not just immorality. What, what are the things that maybe, maybe, maybe entice us? I'm, I wrote down a list. You know, I can't get away without one list, so I'll give you this. Do you think alcoholic beverages could be a, could be a, a blinding impact? Yeah. And I know somebody will go, well, the Bible doesn't say don't drink. Okay, man. Talk to the hand. Don't do that. It's an overwhelming thing. It gets into a person's life and it'll destroy them. Maybe for years, nothing goes wrong and then, then it destroys them. How about mood-altering drugs, illicit drugs? Yeah. And our society is more and more going, hey, what's the big deal? Let's just smoke some pot. Let's do some weed. Let's have a few drinks. Let's relax. Take the edge off. I'm here to tell you, the Bible says the only, the only person who's supposed to be in charge of you is the Holy Spirit. Not alcohol, not drugs, not anything else, Okay. God the Holy Spirit. How about greed and materialism? Greed and materialism. Boy, that'll, that'll eat your lunch, won't it? That'll get you all wrapped up in the world. Lust and immorality, to say the least. I mean, the world, I, I don't, in my lifetime, I've never seen such open immorality and debauchery, and people are proud of it. You know, somebody said one time, it's one thing to hide in the closet because you're ashamed of your sin, but when you come out and shove it in God's face, you probably ought to duck. I mean, you know, it's probably time God's going to deal with that, you know? And we're in that society today. People are, 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 are no, longer, no longer ashamed of their sin, and they, and they throw it in God's face, and so it leads to destruction. Uh, pornography, pornography's probably become so 
accepted today and mainstream in people's lives that, that they don't even see harm in it, you know? And, and I've even had people say to me, well, you know, I don't hurt anybody. I'm, it's just me, and, and I don't, you know, I'll hurt. Well, no, it, it, isn't, it isn't about us. It's about God. It's about purity. It's about what God said. It's about God. Listen, and what did Jesus say? If you think it in your mind, it's the same as doing it, right? So adultery and fornication, it's all the same. Uh, gambling. Gambling. The dog track used to be in Orange Park. Now it's the, now it's the thing where you can go play poker, okay? You can gamble. I know people that lose their paycheck every time they get paid because they like to gamble. Sports gambling is big now. You can do it right on the, right on the internet. Yeah? I won't even talk about lottery tickets because I'll make everybody feel bad. I won't do that, okay? Leisure and recreation. Can leisure and recreation become, become sinful and overwhelming? Sure it is. I mean, nothing wrong with fishing. I, like, I used to own a bass boat. I used to fish all the time. But I figured out after God called me into ministry, I didn't have time to fish. I didn't have time. It made me a fisher of men instead of fishing for bass in the St. John's River, right? So what do you have to do in life? Sometimes when God calls you, you have to go, well, you know what? Not, I don't have to get rid of my, my boat. I don't have to get rid of this or the other thing. But what do you do? You say, well, God's calling me to do something, and, and I want to give my time and my energy and my effort to that and not to that stuff that, by the way, has no value uh, in eternity. How about, you know, I wrote a whole bunch of stuff. But anyway, you get the point. If we allow anything, as, saw, as Samson did here, if we allow anything to begin to, to control our lives, we become blind to the truth. We become blind, and, 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 it, and it can become very destructive. Now, we got like six minutes, and we got, we got 15 more verses to do. So I think what I'll do is summarize them, okay? I was trying to get us to the end of this chapter tonight. As a matter of fact, let's do this. Let's do a run on commentary starting at verse 15. How about that? And I'll just hit the high points as we go. Look at verse 15. So now he's been this tit-for-tat thing with her, you know, hey, it's, you know, cords and, and, and ropes and my hair. But now look at verse 15. Then she said to him, how can you say I love you? Ooh, now she's pulled out the big guns. Now, now she's using the love word, okay? How can you say you love me when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and have not told me where your great strength lies. So you know what? That's the old, if you really love me, you would tell me. And Samson should have said to her, if you love me, you'll stop asking. That's what she said. If you love me, you'll forget about it, and we'll talk about something else. Notice what happened, though, verse 16. And it came to pass, look at this, when she pestered him daily, how often is he going over there? Every day, okay, right? So it came to pass when she pestered him daily with her words and pressed him so that his soul was vexed to death. Now we make fun when we go, somebody bugs you to death. Here's this man who can pick up the gates of a city and walk off with him, and this woman is wearing him out emotionally, psychologically. Then I hate to read verse 17. Notice what it says. He told her all his heart. And he said to her, No razor has ever come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaven, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. Well, Samson, you could have told her anything, but you didn't have to tell her that. 
Well, notice the results, verse 18. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up once more, for he has told me all his heart. So the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. Now verse 19. Then she lulled him to sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Now look at the next statement. Then she began to torment him. Hmm. And his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he woke up from his sleep and said, I will go out as before at other times and shake myself free. And the saddest verse in the whole thing, the saddest parts at the end of verse 20, but he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. That's what sin will do for you. God leaves, leaves him to his mess and he don't even know it. Let me tell you how how serious that was in the Old Testament. Now, praise God, in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit will never leave us, no matter how bad we mess up, because He's in us and He sealed us. You remember what King David prayed after his sin with Bathsheba? He said, God, please don't take your spirit away from me. Because David knew. He saw it happen to Saul. He said, Lord, don't do that. God took His hand off Samson right here. The Holy Spirit wasn't there to empower him. Verse 21, then the Philistines took him and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza. Well, he's been to Gaza before, hadn't he? The place where he took the gates off the wall. So they take him down there bound and blind. They bound him with bronze fetters and he became a grinder in the prison. So they put him into prison and had him grind grain. The lowest of tasks. Verse 22, however, the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaven. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered together to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, our God has delivered into our hands Samson, our enemy. Now stop right there for a minute. The sin of this man has brought blasphemy on the name of God. Because now these pagans are saying what? Because we outsmarted you, because we captured you and put your eyes out, and now you're our slave, you're our prisoner, our God's better than your God. Boy, that says a lot about our testimony, doesn't it? And I don't have time. This is verse 24. When the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has delivered into our hands our enemy, the destroyer of our land, and the one who multiplied our dead. That's why I think over the years he wore them out. So it happened when the hearts were married that they said in verse 25, Call for Samson that we may perform for us. So they called for Samson from the prison, and he performed for them, and they stationed him between the pillars. Verse 26, then Samson said to the lad who had held him by the hand, let me fill the pillars which support the temple so that I can lean on them. Now the temple was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, about 3,000 men and women on the roof watching while Samson performed. So get in your mind, there's about 3,000 people on the roof looking down into the middle of the, of the temple thing there and there's all the lords and all their people under there. There's a lot of people there. Then Samson, verse 28, called to the Lord. Let me pause there, and we're about out of time. You know what one thing you don't see in the story of Samson very much? He don't pray much. Matter of fact, he prayed when he was thirsty after he wore the guys out with the jawbone, and he prayed right here. You know what sin does to our prayer life? It puts a stranglehold on it. There ain't a lot of praying going on when we're in sin. Why? Because we're ashamed, and we know better. And we don't want to talk to God because we know we're in sin. Samson didn't have much of a prayer life, but right here he got one. 
He said, I pray, strengthen me, I pray just this once, O God, that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines from my two eyes. Now I find that interesting too. Samson's the same old Samson to the end, isn't he? Why does he want vengeance? Because they put my eyes out. Not because they're blaspheming your name, God. Not because I messed up and, 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 and they deserve to be... No, God, they took my eyes, so I want to get them back. How gracious God is, isn't he? How, how, how condescending God is to our weaknesses, to use us. So it says in verse 29, Samson took hold of the two pillars, two middle pillars which supported the temple, and he braced himself against them, one on his right and the other on his left. Then Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all his might, and the temple fell on the Lord's and all the people that were in it. So the dead that he killed at his death were more than he had killed in his life. And his brothers and all his father's household came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Estel in the tomb of his father Manoah. And he, he had judged Israel for 20 years. Let me close with this and we'll pray and we'll go. Could that story have been different? Yeah. Could have been incredibly different. Could have been, I mean, could have been one of the greatest heroes in all the Bible, couldn't he? I mean, with the Holy Spirit's power in his life, if he'd have just, if he'd have just pursued God and been faithful in his Nazarite vow. Let me make the application and we'll close. What's the story of our life going to be at the end? We get on the other side, when we get to heaven, where we look back and say, man, I could have been so much more. I don't know. I think we're going to be sorry for all the opportunities we missed. Jesus is going to wipe tears away. I think there'll be a lot of weeping because when we get there and see him, we're going to think, oh, man, I should have, I should have worked harder. I should have been, I should have, I should have, I should have. Probably be some of that no matter what we do because we're sinful people. However, we could work really hard for Jesus and make it as little as possible. What do you think? Could we work really hard for Jesus and get there and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Could have been a different story, but sin, sin, I think, cut his life short and cut short what he could have been for God. Let's not do that, okay? That's all I can say. Look at somebody else's error and go, let's not do that. All right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the honesty about Samson, the, the straightforward account of his life. Thank you for Samson, Lord, for what he did and what you used him to do and, and the blessing it is when we read it. And yet our heart is, uh, is warned about what sin can do, Lord, the, the effect of it, the bite of it. Help us, God, to be careful. Help us to be sensitive, to confess, and to be the men and women you've called us to be. Father, if there's somebody here tonight who's not prayed and asked Jesus to forgive them, I pray right now they would do that. God, confessing our sin and asking for your salvation. Bless this invitation, Tom, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll stand as we sing. I'll be down here if I can pray with you or help you. You come.
thank you for being here today and coming back tonight. I pray you have a really blessed week in the Lord. Uh, invite somebody to come to church with you this week, and I hope to see you Wednesday night. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the fellowship we have here at Oakley Baptist Church. God, your church is worldwide. God, it's universal. All the redeemed of Christ. And yet, God, you put us in local assemblies where we can encourage one another and serve. Thank you for these men and women, Lord. Thank you for all those who serve in this church. God, what a joy and a privilege it is to be here. Bless us with